Textile Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Deus Textile Podcast, a place where some of the most progressive and innovative builders, thought leaders, and traders in the crypto space come together to discuss all areas of the crypto industry. Whether you're into DeFi, Layer 1s, Layer 2s, NFTs, or anything in between, we've got you covered. And as a reminder, nothing said on this podcast should be construed as financial advice or as a solicitation to buy or sell any digital asset or security. The comments, views, and opinions expressed by the hosts or guests on the podcast are their own. As always, you'll need to do your own research. Now, with that out of the way, let's get to the episode. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome today to the Deus Ex Dao podcast. I am your host today, Brucey, one of the council members, and I have the pleasure of having Mike from Goldfinch Protocol with us. Hey, Mike. Hey, yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you guys on. Um, I'm a, a big nerd for credit protocols, <laughs> and I think what you guys are doing is just very, very exciting. Um, and that was the reason why we wanted to ask you to come on. Yeah, great. Great to be here. And uh, I love talking about all of this. So I'm excited. Okay, great. So as a as a first step, maybe you can give a bit of an intro about yourself. And then afterwards, we can dig into the protocol. Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, I'm Mike. I'm one of the co-founders of Goldfinch. I'm also the co-founder and CEO of Warboro Labs, which is a separate entity that's one of the core developers and core contributors to the Goldfinch community. And before that, my general background is I've been doing data science in the Bay Area, different tech companies and tech startups, um, was at Medium for a bit as the head of data science there for about four years. And then I was at Coinbase running the product analytics team there. And there it was analyzing how different consumers are using the Coinbase products um, and using data science to understand that. So that's where I was for a couple of years before working on Goldfinch and Warboard. Great. Uh, so that's a, a really impressive background. Um, and I actually understood that you and your co-founder met at one of these companies, right? We we were both working at Coinbase, but uh, my co-founder, Blake, the two of us were actually roommates our freshman year of college, like way back, like uh, I think it's, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago, um, or maybe even longer. And we just got randomly assigned as as roommates way back. And so we've worked on a bunch of projects together, but we were both at Coinbase for a couple of years before starting Goldfinch, both getting into crypto around the same time. And so we had that experience, but we had already had, uh, you know, gone way back before even that. Well, well, that's a, a great sign for teams, you know, like for us wearing our investor hats, we always think it is a perk if, uh, if the team, the co-founders, if they have history together, um, you know, myself, I've actually had the pleasure of working with a co-founder for, for a decade. So I think it's a great sign. Yeah, I know. It makes a big difference. I think this is, this for me personally, this is like the, the fifth time uh, I've started like a company or, or a project like this. Um, but it's the first time I started one with, with Blake and with someone who I've known for uh, way, like well over a decade. And it makes, it makes a huge difference. Um, so yeah, I, I can see why that's a point that investors like. I've, I've experienced it firsthand here. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So uh, how, how, yeah, explain Goldfinch and maybe maybe kind of explain to us how you got to that idea in the first place, because it's such a unique intersection of it's lending, it's blockchain, it does something for emerging markets, it's democratization. So um, I'm really yeah. curious how you triangulated on that. Yeah, well, the high level thing 
that we were so high level one of the reasons we were excited and i've been excited to get into crypto in the first place is i think it can truly transform our financial systems and add uh, such a such a degree of openness interoperability that can make our systems way more accessible around the world way more efficient and enable way more innovation on top of it by having the systems be interoperable and that's like what really got me into crypto in the first place and you know the concept of like financial inclusion i feel like it's like a, a buzzword but i like i really do think it can do that and, and expand access in this way um but what we were kind of noticing while we were both at coinbase and just being in the crypto space is every like everything in the crypto space today is very sort of self-referential and speculative driven and those that's fine like there's a there's a place for that but there's like a cap to what you can do with a system when it's really just driven by speculation and like like all internal to crypto and for us to enable DeFi to like really 10x 100x 1000x from where we are today we have to we have to like break out of this sort of like speculative uh use case here we have to get the whole broader economy into DeFi. like that's where that's where DeFi really has this impact where it can really grow and where like the, the potential expands well beyond what's possible today and that was the main thing that we were thinking about is like feeling like we have a bunch of these things in DeFi in place how do we actually make that happen and then we we sort of identify that the, the big thing we can do is and the big thing crypto can do is provide access to capital and we can provide this to borrowers out in the world who who are looking for it and that's where we sort of landed on essentially as a first starting point these underserved borrowers especially in emerging markets who are uh, in this case fintech and lending businesses who have really great businesses and they just need more capital to grow what they're already doing and so the the purpose of goldfinch is to be this bridge between all of these borrowers out in the world who can benefit from the capital and have great businesses and giving them a way to access all of the capital and these interoperable systems on on DeFi. And that was like the main that was like the main purpose of it and when we do that we are also able to just expand what is possible with DeFi by by building this bridge and getting them on. So that's sort of what initially prompted us to to start Goldfinch and Goldfinch is is essentially this this mechanic, this protocol to organize this activity to help get the capital into these borrowers' hands. And the kind of comparison that I would make here is it's it's the, the big question is how do you determine that a, a borrower is is good for the credit? And you look at existing lending protocols, for example, Ave and Compound, and the way that they do that is the folks put up put up collateral in the form of crypto. They put up like $150 worth of ETH to borrow $100 worth of USDC. Uh, and what Goldfinch is enabling is to provide other forms of collateral, like off-chain assets, like the, the actual businesses that they're running out in the real world. And so on Goldfinch, the, the borrowers will put up these other forms of collateral uh, and borrow against that. And, and, we, and the Goldfinch community is creating the mechanisms to do that. So that's like a very high level of... Uh, to your original question of like, why did we start it? We started it because we we just see this massive potential and and want to make it possible. Well, I, I love that vision because I think it's true in these markets. You know, um, I and I'm sure many of the listeners will spend time thinking about well, what are the real use cases of crypto? And you're right, yeah. it is super self-referential, and some of that serves a purpose. I think yeah, you know, yeah. like like even just like trading, speculation, etc. Makes sense, but 
these use cases, the competitor world outside of financial gain distinctly in crypto, I, I think are really useful. Um, and yeah, and so, I would add to that. Like um, uh, when I say self-referential, I mean, I, I think it's fine. Like these are actually core building blocks we need before as a broader space, we can like get to the next level. Like, so we need all these things to be here. And then we build on top of it by getting beyond the crypto stuff into like broader stuff. So like, um, yeah, like they're self-referential now, but you know, soon as we get the rest of the economy into DeFi, it'll, it'll go well beyond that. Yeah, exactly. And so I listened to a previous podcast with you and, um, you kind of hinted at the process you took to validate the, the business idea. And I found that super interesting. So uh, I'd love yeah. to, I'd love to hear you talk about how, once you had this idea, you started tri triangulating on what became the Goldfinch product. Like, how did you know there was a real need? Yeah, that was, so we, yeah, we started off by being like, okay, we need to get this, build this bridge by going to borrowers and we can create a system to do this. And the question was like, who will the first, borrowers be like wanted to make sure we knew we had essentially like the early users lined up and that there was going to be um demand to borrow and at first we were like oh it'll be the crypto folks so we started talking to like crypto traders and crypto miners and at the time uh this was like in july or so of 2020 there just wasn't that much demand like what they were saying is they were like well we'll, we'll provide capital and maybe we'd want to invest but we wouldn't be looking for borrowing um at this time and so we were like, okay, who are other borrowers? And that's where we kind of thought, well, maybe like like Blake had experience um, with with these kinds of um, wait, I'm forgetting the name of the uh, oh with Kiva. Uh, he's been like a long supporter of Kiva and knew that those kinds of fintech and lending businesses have traditionally sought new, other sources of capital. And like maybe maybe they would be interested. And we started talking to them, and there. The conversations were like, like through our network, just like finding these examples of fintech companies and started talking to them. And it was just a it was very different conversations. Like when we were talking to miners, they'd be like, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe, but like not really. Whereas we're talking to these fintech companies in like Nigeria and Brazil and Indonesia. And they're like, okay, like when can we get a loan? Like on the, <laughs> on the initial 30 minute call, they're like, okay, so can we get a loan now? And we're like, <laughs> we haven't even started anything yet. We haven't even wrote a single line of code. Um, but just hearing that, and then basically before we even started working on, on the initial lines of code, we had like a dozen or a couple dozen of these businesses like lined up, basically being like, let us know as soon as you're ready, like we're ready to borrow kind of a thing. And that was really interesting because um, they're willing to jump through hoops at the early stages, like figure out how to use like MetaMask and figure out the exchanges and all of the stuff that was a lot of friction, mm -hmm. especially at the early stages. And it, it involved taking a risk on us, um, just like getting started with this like new this new company. Uh, and so that's when we knew that there was some real real demand here and like a real fit because uh, of their sort of excitement of getting involved at the early stages. And why why do you think that for them this was the fitting solution? Like uh, I just told you yeah. before we commenced the podcast, right? I was talking to my partner about Goldfinch and um, I, I did some NAFCA math around like risk premiums and that maybe local governments need to benchmark against what their local rate is. And um, like, wh what are the inefficiencies that make it that that it's um, helpful for protocol to lend via Goldfinch than somewhere else, for example? Yeah, so the the issue for them is that there aren't many options. So these kinds of businesses often need in the range of 
a few hundred thousand dollars up to like several million dollars to really get to the next level. And when they need less than say 50 to hundred thousand dollars, they can usually get that from their local capital markets. But when they start needing hundreds of thousands of dollars, it becomes very difficult to get it from the local capital markets because the capital markets aren't developed. And then often um, folks who do have capital will go into high interest rate government bonds because the governments offer high, bond, uh, high rates. And so it just becomes difficult to source the capital in the local markets. And then to get the capital from uh, the broader like, like foreign markets, there is that, but usually you have to be at a much later stage. So like a place like Goldman Sachs will uh, do these kinds of financings for companies, but like they start at $50 million minimum because of all the work that's involved with, with getting it set up. And so there's this like range of several hundred thousand dollars to like millions, like, like millions of dollars, even tens of millions of dollars, where the way to, to, to get that capital is to like find, to, to have a good network of like specific high net worth individuals or family offices around the world, or there's a few of these credit funds that focus on these, but they're, they're limited. And so, and that, that's because there's just like these frictions to getting capital in the hands of someone who is, you know, in a, in a foreign country. And so that's what the, that's where the, where crypto really comes in is crypto is able to move much more efficiently and also is able to benefit from like the community efforts around it. And that's how crypto can like, formulate the capital that much faster and get it in the hands of these businesses. But what, what they were finding, these fintech and lending businesses, is that it's just a struggle to get the capital in this range, even though they have like super profitable businesses and like great track records. It's just it's just limited because they're in this kind of like uncomfortable gap between their what their local markets can do and what foreign markets are typically willing to do. And the average person doesn't have access to these opportunities, right? Which is why lending on Goldfinch is so interesting. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like for, for I mean, the, the thing that really drives us is, is enabling everyone to be able to participate in these systems. And so it's both the borrowers, like how do you provide access to capital in, in these different markets? But it's also for investors. Um, right now, like I mentioned, there are these specific credit funds that are able to great, get great deals with these really high quality fintech and lending businesses and provide really high quality loans at really compelling yields. But if you want to get in- uh, Sorry, sorry, one, one, one question. Can you describe for the listener, what's a credit fund? Oh, a, a credit fund is kind of like analogous to a VC fund, but for debt. And so what a credit fund does is they'll raise capital from investors the same way a venture capital fund will raise capital from investors, but the kinds of deals they do are, are loans to businesses mm. like private, private loans for like several years at a, at a certain interest rate. And so it's a credit fund is essentially providing like a, you know, a, a fixed income option uh, compared to like where a VC company provides like equity upside. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And yeah. And so to participate in these credit funds, like you, you have to, again, you have to, you have to know them. You have to be well-connected. Usually you need to be a qualified investor, which means uh, individuals need to have like 5 million plus and, and entities have to have even more than that. And so it's just very hard to even get a piece of these deals. And so uh, providing access to these system applies both to the borrowers, but also to investors. And now uh, what crypto offers the potential for people all around the world to have access to these deals that have traditionally been only available to like the top like 0.1% of folks. Great. Thanks for, for breaking that down. Yeah. So 
you have uh, named your entities along the bird <laughs> ecosystem. <laughs> there's a, there's Warbler Labs, there's Goldfinch. Yeah. Could you explain sort of the lay of the land and um, how how your team is looking at the moment? Yeah, so there's the there's the Goldfinch protocol and there's the Goldfinch Foundation, which is helping to act as a steward on behalf of the, the Goldfinch DAO. And so that is this community-owned protocol and system. And then separately, we have our company, Warbler Labs. And what we are is we're one of the core contributors to Goldfinch. So we're a team of like technology and operations folks who are making proposals to the community and working on different features and things basically as a service provider to the DAO. And so that's how, like, so uh, our team right now, we're just over 20 folks and like we're just building things that the community has voted on and like we're making our own proposals and suggesting it to the community. So that's how these things sort of relate is, is Goldfinch is just this fully community owned system. And then we are essentially like Warbler is this like separate sort of service provider to the community. And thank you. So how are you thinking about sort of ramping Goldfinch up? Because my understanding is that you as Warbler Labs in the beginning have done a lot of sourcing for lending opportunities and you guys are driving the core dev. Uh, but also over time, I imagine you want to see that democratized. Um, but yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a two-sided coin where, you know, you guys are, are pushing it. And therefore also, I think people... People romanticize, I think, democratized like DAO governance, but very often there are only a few people to do all the lifting. Um, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious for, for, for your, your view and strategy on that. Yeah. And so, I mean, we, yeah, we're just like one among all of the contributors on Goldfinch. And even when you look at the deals that have already come onto Goldfinch, they have been, they have been funded in a decentralized, democratized way. Like the borrowers come in and they propose their loan. Um, and then the community of folks who we call the, the backers, they assess them and they participate in them. And so like what we've been doing is at Warboard trying to build great systems to help the community assess these borrowers. And like one of one thing that can help contribute to the systems is like getting lots of experts involved in in evaluating them. And so that's like something that you know we've been working on too is like how would we create a community of credit experts that can like provide their own views on this on these kinds of deals to help inform the broader community. So like what we've been trying to do at the very early stages of Goldfinch is set the early like norms of how these things can be done. Um, we could create a bunch of like educational materials about how you would evaluate them. We are we want to provide like template kinds of guidance to to borrowers of like here's the kind of information that you would share. And so a lot of the work that we're doing at Warbler is about creating like templates and systems and processes that the community can then use to sort of replicate and like scale out across many borrowers. Okay. And what's hardest about that process, do you think, to decentralize? Oh, I think, um, well, I mean, it's, it's a multi-sided marketplace where there are lots of borrowers who are participating. There are the folks who are like the active investors, who we call the backers, who will be evaluating these different, these different loans. And then there's the liquidity providers who provide capital into the senior pool. And so it's like this three-sided marketplace where we have to like try to get bootstrap this whole marketplace at the same time. And it's really hard to, to bootstrap a marketplace. You kind of have to focus on sort of different different sides of it at one time. 
so that's that's overall the the more challenging aspect is like how do you just generally bootstrap a marketplace um i think another another challenging thing will be we need to make sure the community is set up with the right the right norms and systems right for like evaluate evaluating these businesses um, it's much easier than evaluate to evaluate a lending business than it is to say evaluate an individual company mm-hmm. or an individual consumer. Um, so it is easier. That's sort of why we want to start in this area. But we still will need to develop like a community of credit professionals who can help act as stewards on behalf of the broader community. So that will be another aspect that's important here is like how do we foster that particular type of like expert community in addition to all of these systems and processes. So there's, I mean, uh, yeah, it's definitely challenging. We we signed up knowing this was going to be hard, uh, but that's what's kind of required to, to do something that has, you know, as high ambitions as, as Goldfinch has. I agree. And clearly, I mean, there's there's demand and you guys have scaled pretty, pretty impressively within just a year. Um, I, I think, you know, like you have sourcing, right? You have underwriting. I guess there's a component of that that's auditing that isn't just financial, that maybe is like subject matter expertise. Um, how how are you thinking about that from an incentive structure point of view? Let's see. So, yeah, there, I mean, it, we you can kind of go through every individual participant and look at their own incentives and make sure that they are aligned. Um, but like what it, what it really comes down to is the the folks who are evaluating the borrowers are putting up their own capital and are taking higher risk. So the the group that I mentioned, the backers, these are the folks that are evaluating individual deals. The way that the like the way the protocol is set up is a particular loan is split up into a senior tranche and a junior tranche, and the junior tranche is quote unquote first loss capital. So if in the case of a of a borrower having a default, it's the junior tranche that takes losses before the senior tranche. And the way the protocol works is the folks who evaluate the deals and they provide capital, they provide capital directly into the that junior tranche of the loan, the first loss tranche that is higher risk. And the senior pool, which is this other aggregated pool, it's automatically allocating capital across all of these different loans, which we call pools, and they're allocating it into the senior tranches. So the the senior pool is aggregated and is automatically diversified across all of these pools. And it also is also protected by the junior tranches of these individual loans. And the question is like, how do you make the incentives work? Well, 20% of the interest that would be allocated to the senior tranche is reallocated to the junior tranche. So it gives the backers who are participating in these junior tranches a an outsized return. Like the way it works is if you take a, a pool that uh, has a 10% interest rate and you say that the, the backers of the junior tranche is 20% of that total pool, well, the effective interest rate that the backers will be receiving is 17% APY instead of 10%. And so it's a really significant bump. And so the way those incentives work out is these backers are taking higher risk. They're doing a lot of the work to evaluate these borrowers, but they also get rewarded more highly for doing so. And so to your initial question of like, how do you get the incentives to work? It's like, we gotta, we gotta say like, who's doing the work of evaluating folks. And then how do you make sure that like the, the folks have the incentives where like they need to do a good job of whatever their role is in order to see the benefits of it. 
And so the, the kind of work of evaluating borrowers really falls on the backers. And then these backers take higher risks. They can lose capital uh, sooner than everyone else, but they also have a lot more to gain by doing it right. Right. So the, the junior tranche is both incentivized for their concentrated risk as well as for the due diligence by the higher rate, which is technically paid for by the senior tranche, right? Um, yeah. And, and then separately, would there be an origination fee? Like, let's say someone contributes someone who could be a lender and wants to take out a loan. Um, is that something that would be rewarded? Yeah, the white paper has uh, describes the the concept of an origination fee, and I um, I think that'd be really cool. And and like it's a little bit vague as it's described. So like someone from the community would need to propose a, like a more specific way for an origination fee to work. But like I think it would make sense for someone to be able to earn an origination fee, and probably that fee needs to be dependent on the borrower like actually paying back their loan versus like it could create misaligned incentives if they just get the origination fee up front and they yeah. could bring like bad borrowers. You have to make sure that they're also incentivized um, in the appropriate way. But like, yeah, I think an origination fee is a great way where uh, if you can give folks in the community the ability to build up their reputation and bring great borrowers, even if like, like the folks who are good at evaluating folks might not be the same folks who have a lot of money to start with. So like an origination fee is like one example of a feature that helps bridge that gap where someone who's really good at doing work can build up their reputation and uh, get get compensated for doing that work, even if they're not the ones who have the capital. Like they can bring these opportunities and other people can provide the capital and they can be paid a fee for doing so. And then it's just a matter of thinking through the mechanics to make sure that like they get their fee after they've proven, you know, it's like a good, it's a good loan that they've brought. And so this would be the type of thing where you want to encourage the community to actually go formalize a proposal that maybe you guys could build. Yeah, like we could build it. Uh, other folks in the community could build it. And like I could picture eventually maybe Warbler as a company, like we just make a proposal for it when when we think it would be cool or or maybe the community thinks it's, it's more important and they like really push for proposal. Because what our goal is to really do is build things the community wants to see. Uh, and so like we're helping to propose some things, but like if other folks propose it. So it's pretty open. If like there are folks out there who like really want to see uh, origination fees and they have an idea for it like they can they should totally go and propose it um and like we could we could build it or like what would be really great too is we start building out a community grants system where like we'll have other folks also like there have already been other folks who have built things for goldfinch and so maybe they could build it so yeah it's like um yeah i would say you know it's, it's what, what people want to do like maybe we'll propose it eventually or maybe other folks in the community will it just kind of depends on uh you know what the community is looking for Makes sense. Okay. So let's talk about the, the borrower book for a second. So you mentioned credit funds. You have a bunch of really awesome uh, startups like uh, Tugenda. Um, yeah. And I'm curious if you have a particular strategy for that. Like how are you aiming for, for example, like uh, geographical diversification? Are you aiming to first penetrate a particular niche? Like let's say credit funds internationally. And you know, I, I imagine since a lot of it is currently driven by Warbler Labs that you're really trying to think about, okay, well, what's the best sort of uh, investment of your time and energy? Um, yeah. Yeah, and help I, impact that. Yeah, and I would say, I wouldn't say it's just primarily driven by Warbler Labs. Like we're one among the whole community and we're trying to create um, these sort of systems and like propose what we think are, are good approaches going forward. But I can share 
basically what we're proposing without saying we're driving it forward, which is that we think it's the, the real the real best way is focusing on these fintech and lending businesses across many markets. So already Goldfinch has deployed capital across over 20 countries um, all, all around the world, like not concentrated in just particular spots. And we think that's really valuable because uh, in a global sort of macro market, it's great to have that diversification across many countries. And these fintech and lending businesses have already built out these really strong track records. And you can look at what they've done previously during COVID when there were, you know, uh, also large spikes and defaults around that time. And you can ensure that they had been profitable even through those prior tough periods to get confident that they're going to be able to weather future sort of difficult times as well. And so that's why we think these fintech and lending businesses, Tugende is a great example. They're, they operate in Uganda and Kenya, and there's a number of other companies. And then what we also sort of found is a great channel partner are these credit funds. And these credit funds are the folks who have traditionally been the ones that provide these loans to uh, these kinds of businesses. And like I mentioned before, where these businesses, fintech and lending businesses, they've struggled to access capital because it's just the credit funds that can provide to them. Well, even the credit funds themselves, mm -hmm. they also are limited in how much capital that they can raise. And so they find Goldfinch really compelling because they can, they can raise a lot of capital through Goldfinch and then start doing even more of these types of loans to these fintech and lending businesses. So the, the approach that we've seen being successful in Goldfinch so far is, is basically a, a dual approach where some of the fintech and lending businesses, the one who are a little bit more well-established can come directly to the Goldfinch community, but then credit funds are acting as a great channel partner because they can go out to like smaller, sort of less developed companies that maybe aren't totally set up to be able to make a whole proposal to the Goldfinch community. They're like more smaller deals. Like if you think of like earlier stage startups going to a VC, a VC is like a little bit better at, at serving those kinds of companies than, than the community. And so the credit funds can also act as this great channel partner for Goldfinch. So that's where we've been finding uh, sort of a lot of the, the early traction here. And I, I would suspect that at least in the early stages, credit funds will be able to be a really great channel partner for Goldfinch in terms of finding these kinds of fintech and lending businesses and being able to deploy uh, a lot more capital up front. Right. I hadn't thought of that actually, that the credit fund would also have almost like a, a lower threshold for which they could provide a, a loan. Whereas for, for Goldfinch, that may not make sense because of lack of track record or size. Yeah. And I would say like, maybe I wouldn't describe it as lower threshold because that could make it sound like they're lower quality, where they're really still high quality borrowers. But when when you're looking at a company that's a bit earlier stage, maybe one that only has like a year and a half or a year to two years of, of performance track record compared to like five plus years, um, what you want to do is you want to like meet the team and like go in a lot like a lot more detail with them, uh, see how they're approaching things at a, a much more granular level. And that can be easier for a credit fund to do than like a broader community to do. Whereas mm -hmm. when you have a company that has a longer track record, they can share a lot more of this information. It's usually just like in a more standardized format. It's like easier to work with. And so it's just like better suited for a larger group of people to evaluate. Whereas uh, an earlier company can be just as high quality, but the it's more like of a bespoke analysis that you need to do, which case it can be easier in some cases for a, a credit fund to do that analysis because they maybe have more of that 
experience with those kinds of bespoke deals. But but I would say at a high level, like I, I, I eventually think that even the smallest companies will eventually start coming to, to Goldfinch as we create systems that standardize the, these things better, create better templates for how it works. Um, we start creating like a community of folks who have who can do that more granular analysis and they're just structured less as like a credit fund, but more as like a community. And so I think that will happen eventually, but we just gotta, we kind of like gotta build the building blocks of the system over time. And so right now, um, credit funds have been this kind of like amazing building block in, in their own right uh, of being a way to do a lot of this work. Right. And they'll probably have more diversification among those early stage uh, pro projects too, I imagine, or, or startups. Yeah. Um, so, so what are the average loan terms you're looking for? Like what's the minimum, what's the average duration and roughly like what's the pricing in terms of interest? Yeah. So, I mean, the typical loan terms are a loan for three to four years at an interest rate of 10 to 12% is like what is typical, uh, in, in these markets around the world. And then there are some, some particular areas, uh, that tend to have like higher higher interest rates such as sub-saharan africa and then places like southeast asia tend to have slightly lower rates but like generally speaking it's in the range of 10 to 12 percent interest rates and like three to four year term loans and any minimums after which it becomes attractive for goldfinch or the backers to really do do the, the underwriting there are i mean so the the system is built up that there's no there's no minimum um but like usually for it to be worth the borrower's time put into doing all the work to get set up on Goldfinch, they, they probably need to raise a minimum of a few million dollars is generally what's necessary. Um, so like very, very early on when we started, uh, we did a few loans that were like 100K, 300K. Um, but now we're getting to a stage where uh, most of the loans tend to be uh, a few million dollars. Like, like most recently, they've been like $5 million at a minimum because it just makes it worth that borrower's time to get set up. And then the credit funds even want usually more capital because they want to deploy it across many businesses. So they'll want more. Um, but like technically, there's no minimum in the smart contracts. It's more of like, what are the minimums from like a practical standpoint of like what the community wants to fund and like what the borrowers want to do. Right. And do you find it scales with a particular borrower, for example? Like they'll start with a million and if that goes well, they'll do a second round for more money? Oh, yeah, yeah. So like... um. Uh, there have been a few borrowers that did like 100K, then 300K, then a million. And the thing that's, that's kind of amazing about Goldfinch and, and crypto in general is you figure it out how to do it once and then you like literally could just copy paste what you yeah. did before. And in the case of Goldfinch, it's like not just copy pasting essentially the smart contract, but the legal documents and they, they prepare all their data rooms and, and, and all, like, like an extensive amount of information. And so you have to put all that information together. Um, but once you've done it, you have it. And once you have a legal document figured out, you have that. And so it's it's much easier to then just basically copy and paste everything, share all that information, share the same legal docs again, and um, you can do you can do the next one ten times as quickly. The important part is just making sure that still what you're what what a borrower is looking to borrow, the community thinks that like okay, it still makes sense for the borrower to borrow. Like it might make sense for them to borrow a million dollars, but like maybe not a hundred million dollars. So you still are limited by um, you know, what are sensible amounts for the borrowers, but from like a, like a tactical standpoint and operational standpoint, it's very easy to, to do it again. Okay. 
And so if if someone wants to loan from Goldfinch or uh, wants to provide capital, uh, how does someone go about that? Yeah, so I mean, the quick answer is it's it's basically open to anyone who is either outside the U.S. or within the U.S. who is an accredited investor. And you can go to app.goldfinch.finance and there's a UI interface for, for being able to do that. And what, what, is, what is actually involved is when you go, the interface has you first complete KYC, which is know your customer, which is verifying who you are um, by like providing your ID. So you like verify yourself and, and you, you mint what we call the unique identity NFT. And this is all done through the UI. And then once you've minted that, you now have access to participating in the different pools on Goldfinch. You can like browse through them. There's the, the aggregated senior pool that I mentioned, as well as like individual borrower pools. And um, you can use a wallet like MetaMask or Wallet Connect to participate. But basically, like anyone can go to app.goldfinch.finance and it kind of steps you through this process of, of basically like enabling yourself to participate and then participating. And if I'm a credit fund or a startup, who do I talk to? Oh, uh, a credit fund or a startup to be able to um, participate as in like a borrower? Yes. Yeah, they I, like, there's two ways. I think there's a um, I think there's a borrow email, which I can follow up with you later to make sure you have the right information. Um, okay. But then also just joining the Discord and going into, again, I forget the exact name of the channel, but there's like a channel there to, to talk to borrowers where they can reach out. And then folks from the Goldfinch community can talk to them and make sure that they're well set up. Another great example too is even um, if you're if you're a fintech or a lending company, um, you can also chat with the channel partners like these credit funds. So mm -hmm. there's a few who have already borrowed through Goldfinch, and like you can chat with them as a way to participate as well because they're also already kind of onboarded. But um, yeah, the the general ways to get involved from the borrower standpoint is through the community's email and also through the Discord in the right channels. We'll uh, we'll put that email in the show notes. Perfect. And the uh, the KYC you touch on actually is a really important part of your design, and uh, I, I yeah. hadn't thought of that previously. Um, so my assumption would be you do that because a credit fund or a startup they have strict regulatory um, uh, rules that they need to comply with, so they can't just uh, ostensibly launder money, and so they need to know that every loan is yeah. coming from a person. Is that roughly right? Yeah, yeah, it's, that's that's exactly right. And that was kind of like when we were building the early version of Goldfinch to like launch the community. It was it was this tough thing of being like no no other protocols are doing this KYC thing. Um, but when we were talking to the folks who who want to borrow from it, like they are these lending companies are some of the most regulated companies in the world, and they have very strict requirements. And for them to get comfortable using a protocol like Goldfinch, they have their own KYC obligations. Like, like it's even like Singapore is even more strict than the US. Like you can just go to jail straight up if you're not KYCing folks properly as like a like like the someone who's running a business in Singapore can go to jail for not doing appropriate KYC. So there's like no way they're going to use protocols that can't provide them with those assurances. And so we were seeing existing protocols that were that don't that just don't do KYC. And like again, when you're in sort of a crypto sort of space and it's a little bit self-referential there you don't have to worry about it but like if we want the whole broader economy to be actually using 
crypto, we have to understand these sort of requirements that they have. And so we need to we need to have KYC. So so we implemented this this format um, where everyone who is interacting with the protocol they need to have this NFT that that they get when they complete their KYC process. And so that gives these fintech and lending businesses the assurances they need to know that like uh, every dollar that they're taking uh, has been KYC. They're not taking any money from terrorists. They're not taking any money from money laundering sort of operations, and they are able to meet their obligations in like their local jurisdictions. Great. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think the process is pretty straightforward. So um, you guys were probably one of the one of the more innovative projects to implement this well. Yeah, we we also implemented it in a way where you get this NFT, and that's just like a public NFT in the sense that um, any other protocol. Could build on top of it like the the way the smart contract works is it just checks do you have the nft or not and and you have to have it in order to complete the transaction and the beauty of DeFi being open and interoperable is like other protocols could do the same thing and so we built it because we think this is where crypto is headed we think if crypto really is going to serve broader economies it's going to need to have a solution for this and so now uh like other protocols can use the same thing. Like you can you can do the same function call on the same NFT because it's this open system. Um, so we built that with we built it with that in mind, where um, we think this is where the puck is headed. And if other protocols want to implement something similar, they can like use literally the same code that Goldfinch uses and just use this NFT as their own KYC provider. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I I want to touch on for a second on uh, the smart contract design because. Yeah. Sometimes it's beneficial, and sometimes it's also very frustrating when smart contracts are immutable. And I'm I'm not sure what design decisions you guys have made there. However, you know, I, I think many protocols they build something that's almost like a prototype or MVP. You put that out into the world, you stress test it, and then you come to certain conclusions that you may want to have changed. But if it's immutable, well, that may be a little difficult. Yeah. Um, for example, like something I, I have just anecdotally, uh, uh, I think, read about Goldfinch, just for example, um, and this this maybe isn't even smart contract related, it's just like like design is your junior tranches need to hit some sort of fill before uh, the, the senior tranche uh, puts the remainder of the capital in. So then people may have idle capital for a while, at least was my interpretation. A anyway, basically what I'm asking is, what choices have you made here? and um, have have you come to any conclusions yet? Like things where you feel like, oh, we should be changing that, that, or this is kind of difficult, or we love what we did here. Yeah, we generally speaking have been moving towards making a lot of the contracts upgradable, including these like these like loan tranche contracts upgradable, so that we can um, add new functions to them without having to do like tons of of migrations because the migrations can be really difficult. And I think like at a high level, when thinking about building in a smart contract environment, um, like the ideal is to have everything be immutable and you know it can never change. Um, and there, there are times when that's easier and there are times where that's harder. The times where it's easier is when the user's interaction with the smart contract is a self-contained one-time occurrence that doesn't require referencing it in the future. So a great example of that is like uh, trading. Like, like exchanges. And so like Uniswap has really uh, been a great example of doing immutable contracts. And it makes sense there because you do a swap, you do a trade, 
and then you're done. You like never have to reference it again. And so because you have these one-time occurrences of a transaction, it can be immutable because once you're done with the transaction, you never have to worry about referencing it again in the future. And if you want to create new features, you can just create new, new immutable smart contracts and you can just do your next transactions on those new contracts. Um, when you start to deal with economic activity where you need to reference like the state of the thing long in the future, it becomes a lot harder to have immutability. So with, with Goldfinch, these are like three to four year loans. And so if you do something that's immutable and you enter into a loan, essentially smart contract, well, like if it's fully immutable, it means that like you can't change anything about that smart contract forever, even though you're going to be using it for three to four years. And if you want to add more functionality, it becomes really difficult to add functionality where you like really want it to be sort of uh, backdated into like adding that functionality to existing things that are still maintaining state in the smart contracts. So we there's that just like dynamic where when the economic activity is kind of like self-contained in a moment of time, you don't have to preserve state, it's a lot easier to have immutable contracts. But when you have something like Goldfinch, where you have to be able to like keep referencing the state and like interacting with that same economic unit over time, uh, having a contract be upgradable is much more helpful because you can improve the way that existing economic unit is working over time. And, and it's like, it's much harder to just like migrate all of that state into a new, a new and improved immutable contract. So I think there's, I mean, the engineers could probably provide um, a lot more substantive explanation of that, but at a high level, we have been leaning towards having a lot of these things be upgradable because um, it's just much easier to work with, with the kind of economic activity that's on Goldfinch. Makes sense. Uh, great, great explanation and heuristic. Thank you for that. Um, and so how have you found that? Like your white paper and original vision, uh, versus, you know, what you've deployed now and how you sort of see that uh, improving over time and evolving. Um, how hard is it? Like, also, you've done other tech ventures before, so I'm curious what the comparisons are, you know? Is, is this really a much more challenging environment to build a, a blockchain business rather than just to do Web2? Ah, that's such a good question. Um, there are things that make it more challenging, and then there are things that make it less challenging. And so probably balances out into just, it's just a different thing. Um, the, the stuff that makes it more challenging is um, we we are working within the context of a broader community. And so when we put this out into the world, like we aren't, we just don't, we just can't decide everything. Like we're putting this out into the world and we need to foster a community uh, and it's up to all of us together of what to change. And so like at a traditional web two startup can just like ship a new feature. Uh, but when we're working in the setting of crypto, we what we do is we propose a feature to the community and we get their thoughts on it and we have a period of discussing it and then we vote on it. And then it's only after that process um, that we are able to like actually make these kinds of changes. And there that, that does add friction and it adds time. But the, the flip side of it is that it's not just us as like, this, this group of 20 people who are service providers, like it's the whole community that's working on it. And you get the benefit of like lots of people contributing to this thing and you can have that momentum of it. And so the, the things that make it easier is first, like uh, it's not just what you think, but like you can get 
the whole community's input. And so you can come to ideally better decisions. But another big part of it is the community can build things on top of it. And there's a lot of stuff that is already that is already built that you benefit from. So for example, like you don't when in crypto, you don't have to build a backend system. Like Ethereum is like a backend system and that like saves just frankly like a lot of time. And we don't have to worry about like uptime that you have to worry about in web two because Ethereum is like basically it's like hundred percent uptime. Um, and then other aspects of like Oh, if you if you could build features and things on top of it, well, what we're seeing is like other protocols start to integrate their systems on top of Goldfinch, and you get the benefits of like them providing those things on top of it. That like if you're in a Web two company, you have to basically build everything yourself. Versus in, in crypto, uh, you can get all of these additional functionality aspects on top. Um, you kind of like basically just get for free because you plug all the you like put all the Lego blocks together. So I would say it's it's different where there's like these more it's like you're working in this community environment which is very different um, and there are ways that that is harder and it takes longer but then also the community itself is like building all the stuff on top like way faster than you could build in a web two environment and so in some ways it can propel the whole system forward a lot faster. Right, it's an open source environment too, which also yeah. means uh, the the competition is fierce. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's competition. Yeah, I guess that's true. But I just think of it as like, um, this, the speed of innovation, it's just like way faster. Yeah. And I mean, some of it are competitors, but generally speaking, we're all kind of like, interconnected in, in this broader system. So yeah, I think, I mean, I love it. I, I, I can't, after this, it's like hard to imagine um, building in web two, when like, we can be building these things that are all just like, interconnected and interoperable, like, from day one. Yeah, and transparent. And it all moves so yeah. quick. Like everything else moves slow comparably. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, yeah. yeah, I love it. Great. Okay. So um I, I wanna I wanna take the view for a second of someone who wants to yield farm or be a lender and help that person shape somewhat of an informed view on Goldfinch as an opportunity. Um yeah. You know, one of the things that I've heard you guys say, and I think maybe deserves a bit of a caveat, is, is my interpretation, is a 0% default rate. Um, yeah. You know, you said the average loan has 36-month tenure or something. Um, and I, I think I've understood most interest payments so far have been pretty timely. Um, yep. But obviously, these are emerging markets. These are also reasonably early-stage companies. So, and and that's where you're getting high, high, high yield. Um, but... Yeah, what, what's your read of that? Like, how how probable is it going to be that there are going to be defaults, and and um, how should someone think about that too, from a lending point of view? Yeah, so I, I should preface this by saying um, I'm not a financial advisor, and I can't really <laughs> yes. tell folks what the risks are of these things. Um, but I can provide data points of of why I've gotten comfortable with it and how I think about it. Um, but yeah, everyone should should do their own analysis and I'm, I really can't, I really can't tell people if it's we, a good We will have a disclaimer before and after, <laughs> for sure. This is not yeah. financial advice. Right, right. You got to be careful about these things. Um, but the the way I think about it is like these, these businesses have strong track records and what they do is they make many, many loans. So let, let's take an example of Tegende. What, what they, they borrowed, I think is $5 million to Goldfinch. What they do is in Kenya and Uganda, they provide motorcycle taxi loans. So these are like, this is like 
like entrepreneurs essentially in in Kenya and Uganda who want to do the Uber of of Kenya and they get a motorcycle and they're giving people rides and they're they're earning a living from doing it and they need a motorcycle so it's like a basically like a two thousand dollar loan that they pay over the course of a couple of years um, and they it's like a, a kind of like a rent to own sort of a thing and what Tegende does is um, they have like a GPS unit on the actual motorcycle so if someone isn't paying back the motorcycle they will just like go to it and reclaim the actual the actual motorcycle and so they are doing thousands of these loans like they have thousands of customers th like thousands of literal motorcycles that are being paid back by people who are using those motorcycles as they're like as they're living um like that's how they that's how they earn a living and they have been operating for many years and you can look at their track record and they have a certain amount of defaults that will happen on like a regular basis. And you can look at what their default rates have been in the past, uh, especially looking back during COVID when times were particularly tough. And you can see that a lot of these folks, they will have track, like their, their default rates will increase during that period of time, but they are still overall net positive in like their actual income. And, and like you can see that they are, even during those times, they are still more than able to to pay back the debt that they're taking on to finance their operations to buy thousands of these motorcycles and that's that's the key thing to understand about these kinds of businesses which is like they are making loans out to to multiple either consumers in the case of Tekende or working capital loans to small businesses in the case of some of the other borrowers and they have their sort of average default rate that, and then and then it's more than accounted for by the interest they make. And so like a lot of the common analysis that goes into it is saying, okay, like could their default rate just like double? And are they still going to be able to make their loans? Are they still going to be profitable? And like ensuring that that's true. And that's part of the analysis that goes into it. But the like the default rates are baked in to these interest rates. Like they are already on average net profitable. They already have an average default rate. And like these businesses have been defaulted on like their debt financing in the past. Like they've been operating for years and like they're already able, they're always able to meet their debt obligations because the debt that a place tech, the debt that Tegende is taking on is on like a track record of being sort of like profitable for an extended period of time. And so I think that's a thing to, to keep in mind of like, what the profile of the risk is. And so participating in, in Goldfinch is basically providing financing to these companies to ramp up their existing loan books. And that is that is a real credit risk. Like if uh, things go really poorly for whatever reason, a company like Tegende could um, have trouble paying back their loans. And now they've never done it before, but like you know, the, the future can always be different from the past. And so it's up to everyone who participates in Goldfinch to look at these companies and make their own evaluation of how comfortable they are. Um, but the way that I personally think about it, the reason why I personally am comfortable with it is because these, these are like the, the default rates that these companies see is like already baked in to the interest rate. Like they, they are already diversifying across many loans, across many people that have typical and, and businesses that have typical behaviors and they're expanding sort of what they are already doing. And they, and so that's, that's sort of like, just wanted to provide that description, but also it's like, yeah, that is part of, it's like, it's a real, it's a real credit risk. Um, the one thing I would also add here is these loans are over collateralized uh, with the off-chain assets. So like Tekende is 
basically putting up all these motorcycles. And so they're borrowing less than like the total value of all these of these motorcycles that they have actually like lent out to people. So it is over collateralized. It's just over collateralized with these assets that exist off chain. They're not collateralized with, with crypto that they put into a smart contract. It's in the case of Tegende, like collateralized by like motorcycles. Um, so that's also something to note. But I think it's like your question about how to think about the risks, like there's real credit risk and it's up to everyone to kind of make their own evaluation of these kinds of businesses. Well, this is why your senior pool is also so attractive, right? Because for me, for example, if I look at credit protocols like yours, um, I, I think, for example, a credit fund by its nature is diversified. Or for example, you're saying yeah. Tugende, right? Like they right. technically also, even though they're they're not lending to, to corporates, but they're lending more to individuals like solopreneurs, et cetera. That's yeah. also a pretty big basket. So yeah. the senior trends is interesting in the sense that you have like two layers of diversification then. Um, which is which is really great. Um, and I understand that you guys have approved, or not you guys, the community has approved a proposal um, to remove the vesting on the 12-month uh, Goldfinch rewards on the senior pool, which means yeah. that that is like, that's 15, 20% yield at the, the current TVL, which yeah. is super compelling. Yeah, the um, to just provide an explanation to, to folks of how it has worked is when you are supplying capital, there's like, the baseline USDC interest rate that you're that, that the borrowers are paying. And then the, the protocol is also giving out GFI tokens. That's like the governance token. That's like the general protocol token. Um, and so you get GFI tokens on top, like which we call liquidity mining. And so right now, the way the senior pool looks, I forget the exact numbers. I think it's like around 7% or so of, or seven to 8% of like the actual USDC interest that you're getting just straight up from the from the interest borrowers are paying plus another in the range of like eight to ten percent uh of yield in in GFI tokens and so it totals up to uh basically 15 20 percent APY the way the goal the way the protocol has worked um up until now is in order to get all the GFI tokens that have been allocated to you as part of liquidity mining you need to leave the capital in there for at least like a year um, and so uh, that was to encourage folks to be long-term oriented for the protocol. But then what we were sort of, the community was finding is that there are a lot of folks who are sort of want to provide capital for shorter periods of time and are sort of, um, you know, don't find the liquidity mining to be that compelling because they just are not assuming they're going to be in there for very long. And so there was a proposal to remove this vesting period, which means you don't have to leave your capital in for a full year in order to see, in order to get all the GFI that has been allocated to you. So like we've been working on that. Um, and then when, when that go is deployed, it means that like anyone who goes in for any period of time can see that full kind of APY rate. I think that's a really compelling change. Um, yeah. My understanding too was that actually lenders is probably the, bar, the, the bottleneck, not so much borrower demand. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's interesting when, with, with bootstrapping a marketplace, there's always like one side of it that's a little bit difficult. Like very, very early on, it was about finding great borrowers who are willing to try it out. And now, we, now we've seen like a lot of borrowers coming in interested in using Goldfinch. And then it means that the next bottleneck is getting more capital in, which is good because that's what crypto is really good at is like providing capital. And then we just need to get some of these mechanics right. And so I think removing this sort of vesting requirement is like one good example of like 
us as a community tweaking things so that we're kind of solving for the latest bottlenecks that the marketplace is seeing. Yeah, um, and I'm, I'm sure this will be well received. Um, so I, I want to touch back on one thing you said, which is the, the collateralization, perhaps over collateralization, which is in the real world. And it's so, okay. So first question there is what's the average rate of collateralization that you find for most, for most loans? Is that a hundred percent? Is that a hundred percent plus? This is one where I have to, I want to double check. I think it tends to be in the range of a hundred to 150%. Mm-hmm. But I should follow up with exact data because I don't, I don't have the, I don't want to uh, mislead folks if I'm wrong here. Okay, yeah, no, no worries. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. Actually, uh, much better than than just uh, saying something. Um, <laughs> okay, so the, this this other thing, and I guess that's also a personal concern of mine is I think about this scenario, right? You have a startup in an emerging market, they default, which should be priced in, you know, but. God forbid, it may happen. Yeah. So they may be over collateralized with motorcycles or with, I, I don't know, like an office building or something like that. Right. But you want to pursue them. Now, my understanding at the moment is that you have standardized loan agreements that you um, facilitate lenders signing directly with the borrower. Yeah. But I don't worry about a scenario where you have, I don't know, let's say 100 lenders for sake of argument, 100 lenders who have provided that loan who are all in ju- different jurisdictions. Some have lent a lot, some a little, um, yeah. and they need to do recourse, but they're, they're not unified. They're not un- unionized. There's not like a single entity who's going to like uh, front the legal costs and pursue. And then you add the fact that they may be in Argentina or Nigeria or et cetera. So I imagine that that decision to do it like that was also to limit your liability in terms of, okay, well, we're not saying Warbler Labs legal is doing that. Um, but strikes me as a critical design choice. So I'd love to understand how you guys configured this now. And also if you imagine that being the state going forward. Yeah. So the, the, I mean, the reason why we did it uh, was less about us and it was more about actually empowering a decentralized community to have legitimate recourse. Um, like if it were any requiring any single central entity, um, well, like, how do you ensure that everyone actually has the recourse? And I think that's an important point just to start off with, which is when a someone as a backer is participating in a loan directly with a borrower, like they are on the loan agreement with that borrower. Like they have actual recourse. And um, that's that's a really important thing. Like when you look at existing, like some of these um, centralized things like like Celsius, for example, if you participate there, it's not really not really a loan. Like you don't have recourse. Like they say, oh, we may or may not be able to get you the money back. Um, and so first, just like actually having recourse is important because it's not like you're just giving them money and hoping they just do the right thing. Like you can pursue them in court. Um, the second thing is when you have a lot of folks on the loan document, like any one of them, can pursue recourse and so like one like the, the bar is required to like go and pay in to this this smart contract and so it's the kind of thing where you really just need like one expert or like one person to go in and really get on top of the borrower to be paying back because they have legal recourse um and that benefits the whole community so by having by enabling lots of people to have legal recourse with a given borrower it's like empowering the community to have uh, a better a better ability to like actually make that happen because anyone in that community can pursue it. What we've seen 
in, in practice here is uh, a lot of credit professionals have already been participating in these loans. Now, also other folks who are not are participating in them um, because they're looking at what other folks are doing and they're making up their own minds. And so there are a lot of folks who probably aren't gonna like go fly out to Nigeria and like talk to the company, but there are some folks who are participating that would do that. And I think like, even though we're already seeing that in these loans where you just need one of those folks kind of like on behalf of the, the, the entire loan agreement here to really pursue it and then everyone benefits from that, I think what will be what so, will be sorry to interrupt you. Qu yeah. Question around that. So, do you imagine then almost like a, a benevolent and more wealthy lender in a in a situation where that that borrower is defaulted to take the initiative and then to basically seek approval on behalf of the other lenders to also pursue on their behalf? Is that kind of the scenario that you imagine? is most probable or, I mean, or, or would yeah. you imagine that like the lenders almost come together and raise similarly to um, the Pooley, you know, frivolous lawsuits where effectively they raised money to, to pursue legal action. Like, it, do you imagine it like that or is in the loan agreement, is there language that says that in the case of default, any lender can pursue on behalf of the other lenders? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, so Getting into the specific legal terms, I'd have to go look at the docs and, and check exactly how it works. Um, I was referring to more um, more the social mechanics of it because like, what, what, what we've kind of found, um, like folks on our team have experience with these kinds of loans, is, is often kind of about how the relationship works and you just need to hold them accountable. Like you need to, uh, like if they're struggling or something, um, you like, need to check in with them on how they're doing and like get the right information um, and basically like make sure that they are uh, going to be able to pay back or like sometimes what happens is it's something out of like not in their control and it like they are they're they'll be able to pay back but they like need some more time and then there it might be something like oh maybe just like a short extension is like really what they need because something with nature or whatever happened and they can't like they can't they can't pay back right away but um maybe a few months later they could do it and so having someone from a social standpoint being able to have those conversations with them who's experienced with it and then like they could be kind of like acting as like socially like a leader uh of the group and be like oh you know we would want to propose like a, like a two-month extension on this because we think that's going to be what happens or it's just about like you send the reminders out to them and like uh you like remind them that like they're expected to do this and they're legally required to and there's that those social elements of it that help um in terms of whether a particular person can legally on behalf of other folks uh do it i don't have the exact answer of like because these documents are slightly different um mm -hmm. but what we think would be really valuable that we want to work on is make that part of the template and then not just that but have the community find folks who are experts that can like act as like loan administrators or servicers on behalf of the community and like actually have it so that every um, every loan essentially has like a community approved administrator as part of it that can ensure like do this do this work on behalf of the community and we'll have to like basically set up uh, more infrastructure like legal infrastructure and like third party services as part of it and stuff and so. Uh, I'm pretty excited about what 
the community could do by implementing that. And so there's like where we could head there of like basically ensuring every loan has it implemented in like a like technically, I don't know, like actually more clear way, but um, sort of practically and socially, there's already that element in, in all of the existing loans. Right. Well, you have to assume the worst, right? And I think this scenario you just sketch of community appointed administrators who have some sort of upside, you know, like maybe yeah. maybe a portion of the maybe a portion of the goldfinch take or the treasury take kind yeah. of goes towards a party like that. So yeah. that's because because the problem I think becomes if it's a million dollar loan, but that isn't carved up equally, you know, you'll have different people who underwrote different parts, then yeah it may for none of them make sense to incur the costs of recourse. So you really have to socialize that, I think, for it to be a viable option repeatedly. Um, yeah. But but the solution you mentioned is very interesting. So is this something that you would envision, like, yeah, from a coordination point of view, does that go from discord debate to forum proposal to formalization? Like, what's the, what's the trajectory here to get something like this done? Because for yeah. me, that would be, like, if you resolve that, probably the core hesitation uh, that, that I might have around a protocol is done. And then then it's remarkably scalable, I think. Oh, yeah. I, I think it could be super scalable. And there's different ways that the community could do it. Um, one of the things that we're going to be proposing pretty soon is just like a community grants program. We, we need a way for the community to like compensate and empower individuals to do a lot of this type of work. And so when we have like community grants, we could have a grant for like, uh, some kind of a committee that can like focus on this kind of solution. Um, maybe folks from Warbor could also be working on this as well as part of that committee. So um, like, I think that it's hard for like a community to approve every individual change or like every unique proposal, but then it's much easier for a community to propose like a committee of folks who are empowered and compensated and have like a budget to do something. So that's how I would see something like this, which can get pretty complex. Probably the community wants to find you know, group of experts who can really just like dive into this. And um, I, that's how I, that's how I would guess it would happen is like, there'd be a proposal for some kind of community or general grant system that can then empower people to like really dig into mm. what could be like some pretty gnarly details there to figure out. Awesome. I'm going to spend some time thinking on that too. Um, you know, yeah. we've had some debates in the DAO and um, I, I think this is something that has come up. So that's great to know. Yeah. Um, so as we get to the end of the interview, um, let's talk about what's uh, what's ahead for Goldfinch. Um, we discussed a removal of the vesting for the senior pool, which is really great. So I just want to emphasize that again. Um, and then I had understood you guys are launching a VE locking mechanic, uh, which is quite exciting, right? So maybe you want to unpack that. Yeah. So we made a proposal that was like approved by the community, um, a broader kind of like we're calling it tokenomics V2. Um, like version two, not like vote escrow, version two. And it's uh, has a few different components of it, but the first one is this initial phase coming up that we're calling membership. And the way membership will work is you lock up the GFI token, but you also lock up uh, some of the capital that you have in the protocol. So like you can invest in the senior pool or you can invest in the individual borrower pools. You take that thing that you invested and you lock up both that and you lock up your, your token. And in exchange for locking both up, you are a member. And what members get are two things. One, they get increased voting power, 
when voting on, on governance proposals. And the second thing is a portion of all revenue coming into the protocol gets distributed to the members. And what we propose is like 50% of all the revenue coming into the protocol gets distributed to the members. And the portion of that that you get is determined by how much you have locked up of both the capital and the GFI, as well as how long you've locked it up for up to four years. So in that way, it is pretty similar to say Curve, where you lock it up for up to four years. The more you lock it up, the more you count towards the rewards that come in. And then the, the places where it's different is we have this like dual lockup thing. We have to lock up both GFI token, both the GFI token and like the the capital that you have supplied towards the senior pool or borrowables. For long-term alignment, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. But then, none, but then, nonetheless, right? And I participated in some of the governance discussion on the forum around this. Um, alternatively, like let's say you don't want to express a long-term alignment in terms of a lock, you could still be a capital provider in the senior pool, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you can still do all. You can still do all of the things, and then um, it just depends on if you want to lock it up. You can get even more of these like member rewards. Exciting. Okay, terrific. Yeah. Anything else you want to mention that you have coming up? I don't know. I think that covers um, the big stuff. Like, I, I am really excited about membership. I think it's like a great way to get some of the like super long term incentive aligned folks in the community to be like really aligned and and benefiting from the goal uh, the protocol like long term success. So I think that will be like a really impactful thing. And then yeah, otherwise I think we. These were great questions. I feel like you touched upon all of the most important things about the protocol. Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, I think you guys are building something that's truly exciting. That is uh, exemplary case of, I think, blockchain doing something fundamentally good in the world. Um, so uh, I, I just can't help but be genuinely interested. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I agree. I feel like that's that's the goal here is to like have crypto actually having real real impact for folks around the world. And that's that's really our mission here. So um, yeah, uh, definitely what we're trying to do and super excited about what Goldfinch can do as it grows in the future. Great. Okay. Thanks so much for your time, Mike. Yeah, thank you.